focus on headline. All right, let's take a look at what major issues are making the headlines today on Focus on Headline. For this, joining us in the studio, we have Kwon Zoa, and back in the studio with us for the first time in a while, I think. Bogyoung joins us once again. Happy Welcome Friday. Back. Happy Friday. Seems like we're all spring today. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I hope everyone's okay because it's apparently cold season now. Everyone's getting sick around us. And so, again, uh, even though we have the mask mandates lifted, uh, we are, of course, going to be wearing our masks today. We're going to start things off with South Korea and the U.S. Uh, planning to hold the large-scale joint military exercise later this month to bolster up deterrence against North Korea's increasing nuclear and missile threats. So uh, what kind of exercise is this? And tell us the significance of this exercise. Sure. This is the Freedom Shield exercise, also in short known as the FS exercise. It's a full-scale uh, training, combined field training uh, between the allies, South Korea and the U.S. It's going to be held from March 13th until the 23rd. Uh, freedom uh, refers to the strong will to protect freedom as an immutable value of the South Korea-U.S. alliance, and the shield part embodies the defensive nature of the jewels. Now, the combined springtime exercise is the first one of its kind held in five years. It had been suspended in the Moon administration as part of a soft-line policy because back then uh, the intercurrent ties uh, were uh, improving. Now, the upcoming exercise looks nothing close to soft, though, as it's going to be the longest of its kind, as I said, for uh, more than 10 days, 11 days, and also it's expected to be uh, upgraded in contents as South Korea and the U.S. are looking to beef up their defense and response capabilities, with Pyongyang having conducted an unprecedented number of missile launches in the past months, or I should say actually last year, because yeah. this year it hasn't been conducting too as many. As right, many. Yeah. <laughs> and a spokesperson at the U.S. Forces Korea said, Freedom Shield will focus within the, quote, exercise scenario on things such as the changing security environment, uh, North Korea aggression and lessons learned from recent wars and conflicts. Maybe that's also referring to the war in Ukraine, mm -hmm. if they say recent wars and conflicts. And the training is to include a number of large-scale joint field trainings, including the Warrior Shield FTX uh, that serves as a training to upgrade execution capabilities. And uh, that's also going to include amphibious landings, which are a military action of coordinated land, sea and air forces organized for an invasion. Now, South Korea and uh, ha and the U.S. have been actually um, upgrading there and increasing the number of ch joint military drills recently ever since the UN administration. Uh, also, just recently, the so-called teak knife exercise, which had already started. It's also going to continue throughout uh, the um, Freedom Shield exercise. And uh, this is a training with a purpose of uh, training special operations forces, for instance, to infiltrate enemy territories. Meanwhile, it's highly likely that Pyongyang will respond to the massive exercises in a provocative way right. that could include Again, missile tests or strong rhetoric or both of them. But Seoul and Washington's militaries made clear this Friday, despite such predictions, they will go ahead with their plan. And also they um, emphasize that these trainings are purely defensive in nature and routine. 
A spokesperson of the Joint Chiefs of Staff said the Korea-U.S. alliance will prepare for the Freedom Shield training while maintaining a firm readiness against potential provocations by the North Korean military, adding they would respond to the North's threats with an overwhelming capability. So, I mean, we've seen this happen before. I mean, uh, South Korea and the United States will say again, I mean, the name even says it itself, right? Freedom Shield. And so Shield, it's defensive in nature. North Korea is going to come out with their harsh rhetorics first. They're going to say it's going to be their invasion tactics. They're trying to invade us once again, as if that's how the Korean War started in the first place. Of course, they like to uh, switch up their history a bit here and there. And uh, they're probably going to be firing a number of missiles. Uh, There is highly likely that there's going to be one ICBM, whether it be the Hwasong-15 or the Hwasong-17. And that's sort of a message towards the United States, right? When they launch these uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles, they can and potentially land one of the Uh, I guess uh, the mainland United States and then the short-range ballistic missiles, of course, the message to South Korea. So always kind of the same sort of pattern that we see with North Korea. Hopefully it doesn't ramp up the already high tensions. In the meantime, in its uh, new cybersecurity strategy, the Biden administration mentions North Korea, China, and Russia as major cyber threats to the country. Uh, What else does the uh, cybersecurity strategy highlight, Bo Young? Right. So on Thursday, the White House issued a new cybersecurity strategy, which also highlights cyber threats posed by North North Korea, China and Russia. With ongoing cyber attacks paralyzing core infrastructure of the country, the U.S. government issued its new cyber strategy to strengthen security of the country's key infrastructure. On Thursday, the White House said that the purpose of issuing the new strategy is to reorganize the cyber realm to become a tool to achieve economic security and prosperity of the U.S. The policy document depicts North Korea, China, Russia and Iran as key cyber threats. The strategy writes that other autocratic states aggressively use advanced cyber capabilities to counter to U.S. interests and international norms. It also points out China to be the country presenting the quote-unquote broadest, most active, and most persistent threat to both government and private sector networks. Regarding North Korea and Iran, the paper writes that the level of sophistication of those malicious activities is advancing and that North Korea has been securing funds to be used for its nuclear ambitions through cryptocurrency theft and ransomware attacks. The U.S. has mentioned many times that it would root out any illegal cyber activities, but this time the White House has rolled up its sleeves to strengthen the minimum requirements for cybersecurity to protect the country's core infrastructure. The strategy, which is a policy document and not an executive order, stresses the fact that a voluntary approach to securing critical infrastructure and networks is not enough. In fact, there have been cybersecurity strategies in every administration that focused more on voluntary public and private partnerships. But now the Biden administration will urge the computer and software industry to develop secure products to significantly reduce any flaws before being introduced into the market. It will also expand the role of the government to take offensive action to preempt any cyber attacks. We're going to move on now to South Korea-Japan ties. I believe uh, not too long ago, was it yesterday or the day before that, uh, we talked extensively about the uh, Yoon administration's push to continue to try and improve the bilateral relations. Well, the two sides do appear to be speeding up their discussions on uh, Japan's wartime forced labor issue through each other's national security offices. Uh, So tell us more about this. 
Right. Amid observations and speculations that Seoul and Tokyo are close to resolving the compensation issue for victims and their families of Japan's forced labor during World War II, uh, the two countries reportedly have intensified their discussions by communicating through various channels. One of that appears to be strategic consultations between the two countries' national security offices in addition to their existing diplomatic channels. And this is being translated into the chance of a decision on the highest level, meaning between President Yoon Seok-yeol and Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida in the near future. While Japan, as far as we know, remains against South Korea's proposal to get Japanese businesses involved in the compensation that a South Korean court had ordered Japanese companies to pay for, Seoul had been pushing for an agreement through a plan to use a private Korean foundation to compensate the victims. The National Security Channel had also been one of the final steps before an agreement in the past was made on Tokyo's wartime sexual slavery issue, which, however, here domestically uh, had not been uh, really um, agreed upon on, I mean, from the nation's people. Uh, So it was kind of a failed uh, agreement when we look at it from now. Uh, However, and also with President Yoon facing criticism domestically due to his March 1st independence movement speech, where he referred to Japan as a partner without referring to Japan's wartime atrocities, Uh, on the very day Koreans commemorate their independence from Japan. Uh, Because of that, a Seoul-Tokyo deal on the forced labor issue may also not come out in the near future, is what pundits are saying. You would assume that it would come out uh, in the near future, right? I mean, uh, certainly President Yoon, of of the many uh, campaign pledges that he had, uh, one of them was, of course, trying to improve uh, relations with Japan. And I think a lot of people say it was a very bold move for him to talk about Japan as a partner. And uh, in, I think any other day, uh, any other speech, a lot of people would say, well, I mean, there's nothing special about that. I mean, he's been pushing for bilateral ties with the Japan. But on March 1st, and of course, mm-hmm. we saw him uh, mention Japan during last year's Liberation Day speech as well, which he was kind of met with some criticism. But on the flip side, you would kind of, you see what would be the results of him mentioning Japan as a partner on a day like March 1st, Mm -hmm. uh, Independence Movement Day, because now there's talks about Japan potentially uh, adding South Korea back into the whitelist, right? Uh, Which South Korea has been removed from. And we had all that uh, export restrictions uh, during the previous Moon administration. So there might be something good that comes out of it. But unfortunately, with the... um, whether it be the comfort women issue or whether it be the forced labor issue, you also need to get the victims involved. And that is where I think the UN administration is really struggling to get them on the same page with, uh, especially because Japan is really not doing their part. And I think in trying to meet uh, us in the middle here, right? So if they do really, if if, uh, the reason, uh, if um, because they are talking at the national security office level, if if that really uh, means that they are just close to an agreement, then I think it's going to have a lot of backlash in in Korea. Yeah, yeah, for the the administration. Yeah, whatever the result is, because 
uh, yeah, I don't think that there is enough consensus on the um, establishment of a foundation to compensate no. uh, the victims. And then we're going to have the same situation uh, like back in 2015, 15, was it? And yeah. then when you have, of course, let's say the next administration turns out to be a liberal administration, they're probably going to scrap what is, mm. I don't know, tentatively called mm. the 2023 uh, <coughs> deal. deal, right? Uh, that's going to be scrapped and then, you know, back to... Square one once again, uh, but I, there's a number of things c- popping up right now. I mean, we had a, a, a an interesting uh, discussion with uh, Professor Yi Hyun yesterday, uh, where he said there is still a possibility that Japan might apologize. Uh, but mm. on the flip side, Kushida is not really having high approval rating right now, and for him to kind of, if miraculously Japan decides to properly apologize to the victims of the forced labor, which ultimately is what the victims really want, uh, compensation second, it's the apology first, then of course the Kashida administration, the Kashida is then going to be afraid that he's going to be met with even further, uh, I guess, uh, uh, backlash from the public and, uh, and, and the people within his party as well. So again, we don't know what's going to happen. Uh, hopefully there's some solution to this, but again, uh, the most important thing is to find a solution that will best fit what the victims want here. Uh, Moving on, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs setting up a temporary task force team to deal with the Fukushima wastewater release, which is another thing that we need to worry about Mm. too. Uh, Pugin, let's get the details of this. Right. So on Friday, it was found out that the foreign ministry had set up a a temporary task force team to deal with Fukushima wastewater release. It is said that the temporary team was set up in December last year already to accelerate cooperation between relevant ministries regarding the release of the contaminated water. It is, though, a small task force team set up within the foreign ministry. In fact, South Korea already has a task force set up in October 2018, consisting of members from various ministries, including the Prime Minister's Office, Ministry of Science and Technology, and so on, to cope with Japan's wastewater release. It is interpreted by experts that the foreign ministry set up its own team to handle the situation more efficiently because preparations for the comprehensive report of IAEA, or the International Atomic Energy Agency, is about to be ready, and Japan will soon discharge the wastewater into the sea. The Japanese government already declared that it would dilute and release nuclear wastewater into the sea in front of the Fukushima nuclear plant starting this spring, when the wastewater storage tank will be full. Japan plans to release 1.3 million tons of the wastewater into the sea, and the government says that several filtering systems will remove most of the 62 radioactive elements in the water, but tritium? A radioactive form of hydrogen will still remain. Yeah, again, the key word is most of the 62 radioactive Not elements. All. Not all, right? And then tritium is the, the big thing here because uh, it, it, I think tritium could be cancerous uh, in nature. And I believe the half-life of tritium is like 32 years, I think, which means that it takes like 64 years to be completely di- mm-hmm. like gone and over with and stuff like that. But uh very concerning here. And speaking of which, also next week, uh, Vice Foreign Minister Ido Hoon expected to attend a meeting of the International Atomic Energy Agency, uh, where the Fukushima issue is expected to come up as well. So let's get the details of that. Right. The official is predicted to bring up the issue at a regular board meeting of the IAEA in Austria next week to refresh international attention on Japan's plan to discard contaminated water from the nuclear plant into the ocean. 
According to Im Su-seok, the foreign ministry's spokesman during a regular briefing on Thursday, Vice Minister Lee will participate in the IAEA's meeting from the 6th to 7th this month. He is scheduled to meet with IAEA chief Rafael Grossi and discuss matters including the water release, but also nuclear safety in Ukraine and, of course, North Korea's nuclear activities. The vice minister also plans to meet Robert Floyd, executive secretary of the Comprehensive Nuclear Test Ban Treaty Organization, and Massimo Afaro, head of the Department of Safeguards for the IAEA. And uh, the spokesperson uh, went on to say that through this visit, he will deliver the South Korean government's position on uh, Japan. Uh, make further discussions and request a thorough review by the International Atomic Energy Agency to ensure that Japan's contaminated water is handled in a safe manner. And so far, I think we know that the IAEA hasn't been really uh, as much concerned as Korea is. Mm. No, if anything, I mean, previous IAEA director generals, I mean, have sort of been backing uh, Japan's decision, and it doesn't have that help that also, I believe, the former IAEA uh, director general was uh, from Japan. And so uh, there's been a lot of support from the IAEA, which is definitely not uh, good news for us here in South Korea. Going to move on to diplomacy-related news this time. Top U.S. and Russian foreign ministers, uh, top diplomats, I should say, uh, they made on the sidelines of the G24 ministers meeting this for the first time since the start of the war in Ukraine. Now, here's the thing. The G20 foreign minister's meeting, this closed without a joint statement. Uh, Let's get the latest on this, Pugyang. Right. So as you said, the G20 top diplomats meeting that was held in New Delhi, India, closed its two-day schedule on Thursday without producing a joint statement. Although member countries utilized various channels to keep discussions going on, opposition of Russia and China resulted in an outcome document instead of a joint statement. India, which holds the presidency this year, tried to bridge differences and produce a joint statement, but such efforts failed due to differences over the war. Now, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken said that this round of meeting had failed due to Russia's groundless invasion into Ukraine. Blinken requested Russia to extend the Black Sea Grain Initiative that was signed between Russia and Ukraine to facilitate export of Ukraine's agricultural products through the Black Sea, which is to be expired this coming 18th. According to a senior U.S. official, Blinken also requested Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov to end the war and urged Moscow to return to the new START nuclear treaty. For reference, the START treaty is a bilateral treaty between the United States and the Soviet Union on the reduction and the limitation of strategic offensive arms. It is effective until February 2026, but needs to be further extended. And last month, Russian President Putin said that Russia will no longer take part in the START extension discussions. On the other hand, Lavrov insisted on an investigation into the explosion of the Nord Stream pipeline last year, requesting for fair and swift investigation. Russia has been claiming that the explosion was a secret operation of the U.S. government. It is said that other agenda, including food, energy security, counterterrorism, and humanitarian aid, have not been discussed in depth in such an atmosphere. And in the meanwhile, the U.S., India, Australia, and Japan will hold the Quad Foreign Ministers meeting today in New Delhi. Yeah, so 
the reason why the joint statement was not issued is quite interesting because uh, the it was because of two countries, uh, and it's the two countries that have also the, the veto power over at the UNSC. And uh, China and Russia, it was because I think when the joint statement was going on, they were saying that, listen, uh, we're hoping, we're, uh, what was it, uh, we're pushing for the end of the war in Ukraine or something like that, and Russia's aggressions against uh, uh, Ukraine and things like that. And the aggression part wasn't what it is. It was the word war. So China and Russia does not believe that this is a war in Ukraine. Like we, we use a number of things. We say the, uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, so we say the Russia-Ukraine uh, war. And oftentimes we use the word, uh, word war, but Russia has yet to use the word war. And instead they call it a, a special operation, right? And so because uh, China also doesn't believe and they're going to side with Russia, obviously, as, as a traditional ally, uh, refuses to put the word war into the joint statement. Because of that one word, uh, they failed to, of course, uh, come up with a joint statement. But I think it was... I think everyone knew that because the main gist of the joint statement was going to be about the war in Ukraine, that China and Russia was going to be against it, and there was going to be uh, no uh, joint statement there. Uh, but nevertheless, speaking of China, it's going to be a huge weekend over in uh, Beijing uh, as the so-called uh, two sessions will kick off on Saturday. The meetings will have Chinese President Xi Jinping's third term as leader formalized. So uh, fill us in on what's expected and what the gatherings are all about. Right. Uh, the two sessions are annual legislative meetings of China's parliament where thousands of delegates from across the country get together for the ratification of legislation, changes to personnel, as well as the budget. So it's basically the biggest schedule on China's political calendar. Uh, and uh, some might wonder why it's called two sessions it's because uh, the two sessions are consist uh, consist of the National People's Congress China's mm -hmm. Parliament and the Chinese People's Political Consultative uh, Conference so on March 4th the Chinese People's Political Consultative Conference will be held and then the following day they will have the National People's Congress but the entire event is actually held for a couple of weeks so it's between one and two weeks uh, there is no, I guess, no exact date when it ends. Uh, and this is basically when Beijing makes major policy announcements and also revisions to the Constitution. And SJ also, as you mentioned, this will kind of formalize uh, President Xi Jinping's third term. So they're going to make a declaration of his um, third term, which is an unprecedented one, as the Communist Party's general secretary. Uh, and uh, also there will, uh, what um, reports are saying, this uh, time there is going to be the largest leadership reshuffle in a decade. Yeah, yeah. And that's going to involve a lot of um, personnel changes, also involving former Shanghai party boss Li Chang, uh, who is expected to be confirmed as premier. Uh, and uh, we know that's uh, the second rank in order. Which in I believe was held by Li Keqiang before, Chang, right? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so, because it, this is also the 
uh, last two sessions then for Lee Ke-chang mm-hmm. in that position, mm-hmm. although he's expected to also get another uh, position, I right. believe. Uh, so uh, I think Lee, Lee Ke-chang is also then going to make some important announcements uh, for this last time. Uh, and some of the important announcements are also in regards to the economy in China. Mm-hmm. Last year, I think during the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, it's GDP really was not at a uh, high level, I think, at a 3% growth in China last year. So the government is expected to announce its GDP target predicted to be at around or above 5%. And it's also set to unveil targets for inflation expected at around 3%, employment and the country's fiscal deficit. Uh, What's also significant is that this will be the first two sessions since COVID-19 restrictions under China's so-called zero-tolerance policy have been lifted. Uh, And uh, President Xi is going to hold a speech, an important speech, tomorrow on the first day. So let's find out what's going to be unveiled. That's right. Well, again, it is going to be a huge weekend over there as uh, we get more information on this throughout the weekend. I'm sure uh, we'll cover this on our Monday's edition of the program. Uh, Speaking of China, South Korean China agreeing to increase flights to pre-pandemic levels. Uh, Let's get the details of this, Pokemon. Right. So according to the Ministry of Land, Infrastructure and Transport, the number of flights for the bilateral routes will gradually return to the pre-pandemic level. The Ministry of Land said on Thursday that it agreed with the Chinese government. And now Seoul and Beijing can again provide 608 flights a week on routes to each other's countries. Before the pandemic, both countries used to provide 1,100 weekly flights. Normally, governments decide the scale of traffic rides and distribute those flight rides to the airlines of their countries. And since the COVID pandemic, regardless of those flight rights, the Chinese government had been limiting the number of international flights. For instance, the route between South Korea and China that used to be around 1,100 flights a week in 2019 dropped to 62 flights a week until recently. And according to yesterday's agreement, now airlines will increase the number of flights to more than 200 a week and gradually increase furthermore. And this month, flights will increase for the routes between Incheon to Beijing, Incheon to Shanghai, Incheon to Qingdao, and so on. And since late last month, the South Korean government allowed international flights between Korean local and Chinese airports. Before, flights from China were only allowed to arrive at Incheon Airport. And now that PCR tests are no longer required for passengers coming from China and visa issuance are not restricted anymore, flights between the two countries will increase significantly as China also eased restrictions imposed on Korean travelers. That's right. So now uh, all inbound travelers from South Korea don't have to take any PCR tests. And it's kind of interesting because it's like shortly after South Korea removed the mandatory PCR test for any inbound travelers from South Korea. So uh, definitely all the things that were put in were sort of on a retaliatory measure by China. Um, Nevertheless, guys, as we've been kind of talking about uh, yesterday in our program, um, what I did, I'm going to do this right now again, because I am kind of curious. One of the things that we haven't done uh, in our program for quite a bit is check out the daily COVID-19 situation, mm. uh, which so I used to do on like a daily basis. Uh, today's, I'm just going to, I'm really, oh my goodness. So 10,000 new cases, about 10,408 new cases today. Uh, there are 11 people who passed away. 
uh, due to COVID-19 and 135 people who are in critical condition. Now, 10,000 arguably could be very high figure considering the fact that uh, we are supposed to be seeing a great deal of a downtick in the virus cases. But a lot of us will say that because we have the indoor mask mandates that were lifted, um, we're sort of kind of like now at the end tail of trying to return to pre-pandemic norms. Now, health authorities are saying now that they're going to be start discussing a possible downgrading of the COVID-19 alert level here in South Korea. This as early as next month of May. So well, let's get the details of this. Yes, uh, as early as next month or May, I think is I think I wrote this wrong. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it could be April or May. So as the virus situation appears to remain stable, the government has decided to soon talk about the possible shift in the alert level of COVID-19. Uh, do you guys know at what level it is right now? Serious. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> but uh, they are, because these days, because as you said, SJ, we are not looking at the daily figures anymore. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, serious seems like a kind of a strong word to exactly, describe the situation yeah. right now. But it is still uh, designated as serious, considering, so they're considering it to level it down to cautious. Okay. A health ministry official said this Friday the government continued to expand uh, the range of daily recovery uh, that we can enjoy and also while considering medical response capabilities at the same time. Adding discussions will begin on the remaining virus prevention measures such as whether, again, whether to downgrade the infectious disease alert level for COVID, mandatory quarantine for COVID-19 patients as this still remains at seven days, and also the remaining mask rules at places like public transportation, medical facilities, and so forth. Uh, so this could happen as early as late April or uh, early May. That's when mm. officials get together to discuss the issue. So it's not that uh, as early as uh, late April, we could start to, you know, uh, take off our masks on buses or uh, subways. Which They're going to start which, the discussions then. Which probably you're not going to do anyways. No, I'm not. And, uh, I, you know, actually, I think I'm going to wear my mask on subways forever because it's just too many people in the subway. And I, I don't think I'll ever feel comfortable anymore without a mask. Like even like 10 years down the line? Maybe, yeah, maybe. Because I think, in and Japan, that's for instance, yeah. it's uh, many people have been wearing masks on public transportation just right. on a daily basis. I think mm -hmm. this has become the new norm for SOA. <laughs> it might actually be a new norm for many people mm -hmm. out there because uh, the other week uh, I take my son to uh, like a sports, kids sports thing, mm -hmm. and uh, he's been wearing masks, and then I told him take off his ma take off his mask, and uh, he started crying because he, because he's so used to wearing masks, right? He's like, everyone else is wearing masks. How, how come I don't have my mask on? And so now that's, kid, kids are kind of, uh, mm. you know, they want to do what everyone wants to do, right? Mm. But um, yeah, yeah. Anyways. So um, the Korea Disease Control and uh, Prevention Agency uh, said uh, that they are going to um, not only discuss this on the situation here in Korea, but they're also going to the the results can also depend on the World Health Organization, which is expected to hold a meeting on the pandemic also around late April or early May. So maybe there is going to be another revision in how to, uh, on a global uh, perspective, deal with the virus. Yeah, I think um, 
right now here in the nation, a lot of people have been very lax. Obviously, uh, you know, aside from today, I, I don't want to get everyone else sick. Uh, so I'm going to wear my mask. But, you know, I haven't been wearing my mask anywhere. Uh, I don't take public transportation. So, you know, mask is not a thing. Except for when I have to go to like hospitals or something like that, I wear a mask. But even today, right? Like I was un really under the weather. I was like, oh my goodness, did I catch COVID-19 once again? It's been like over a year since I had last COVID. And so I go to the doctor and they're like, <clears throat> usually when you go, I have symptoms of like the flu. Mm. They'll go, oh my goodness, let's get you tested. It's They don't even ask me to get tested anymore. I had to ask them, I mm. want to get tested, right? Because... Who knows if I have COVID-19 and I have, I have to work with you guys and, uh, you know, we still have the COVID-19 protocol in place here at Anirang Radio, where if I'm tested positive, I will probably work from home. And so I have to ask the doctor for a test and uh, luckily I, I tested negative here. And so uh, even it seems like at hospitals and doctors are a little bit lax, but uh, some of the health authorities were saying that maybe in the next two months we might see a spike in cases once again, but it's not going to be like as bad as what we saw uh, before. But, uh, I, but yeah. I hope that people just like you, SJ, in the future, uh, whenever we just have a cold, uh, that we think of the people around us and then just wear a mask. So I think that's yeah. the thing that I changed, that the mm -hmm. thing that changed for me is because um, I like, I mean, this is not the first time I've been sick. I mean, I've been sick all the time, like for like the past, my entire life, 30 whatever years <laughs> of my life. But even when I was sick, I would not wear a mask. Right. Right. So it's like, whatever yeah. <laughs> you know you guys catch this cold i don't know what's going to happen but i think covid 19 really changed things mm. where now i have to think about mm. uh you know i think it's good now we're more a little bit more careful more cautious mm. we think about others once we get sick yeah and also we have so many masks that are readily available for right. us and we've gotten so used to wearing masks that it's i mean it's Literally, I mean, it's not going to bother me doing, you know, two hours of show. So might as well, you know, pr protect, uh, you know, my coworkers and things like that. But uh, speaking of some of the changes, apparently another change that we might see is when it comes to treatment of those uh, who are infected with COVID-19. Apparently, uh, less money being allotted. Uh, what's this about, Po Young? Yeah, so once the seven-day quarantine measures are lifted, now it's expected that treatment costs and any kind of financial aid provided to COVID patients will be reduced or no longer be provided anymore. So if you need to take a COVID leave, let's say for seven days, uh, you could take a paid leave until now, but moving forward, maybe not anymore. And currently, the health authority pays a certain part for the treatment of patients. For instance, Paxlovid is provided for free. And if the patient is critically ill and hospitalized, the government pays for the entire cost. But this all might change. Yeah, I, I mean, there's all so much I think the government could continue to fund uh, the COVID-19 stuff, which is why I mean, they cut down on all the uh, the, the PCR testing sites right uh, last year. Uh, we don't have that as many and uh, uh, kind of went into going into some of the clinics to get these PCR. I believe some of the clinics, it's still free to get the uh, PCR test. The clinic that I, I go to, they said it's free PCR test as long as you have uh, symptoms and things like that. But even that might be gone and over with. So again, we are seeing this sort of uh, move towards the pre-pandemic level, uh, whether or not we will be done and over with uh, with this pandemic. It uh, certainly has been a very, very long three plus years for all of us, but I think it's always the tail end that we need to be very ca uh, cautious about. So uh, we'll keep uh, staying vigilant in this continued fight against the pandemic. But nevertheless, guys, as always, thank you very much for coming in with your reports today. Stay safe. Have a great weekend. We'll see you again next week. Get well soon, weekend. SJ.
You can listen to Korea Now with me, SJ Lee, by downloading the Arirang Radio application or tune in online by visiting www.arirangradio.com. So make sure you tune in Mondays through Fridays, 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. Korea time.